Hello, well-being friends, and welcome to the Path to Well-Being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-Being in Law. I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance. Uh, you, you, you listeners know that our goal is, is pretty simple. We want to bring you thought leaders doing meaningful work in the well-being space uh, within the profession and in the process, build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the profession. Uh, I'm always pleased to introduce my co-host, Bree Buchanan, and I know Bree has been working hard as the inaugural uh, president of the Institute for Wellbeing in Law. Uh, Bree, uh, let's let's talk. Let's, let's spend a couple minutes before we introduce our, our sure. guest, kind of talking about the institute. Yeah. Exciting things are happening. It, they really are. And and hello to you, Chris, and to all of our listeners. And it is such an exciting time. You know, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. We had such, such a success with a report. We had uh, 32 multi-stakeholder task forces out of the states all around the country uh, join the movement. And we realized we really, time was um, ripe for us to create our own nonprofit. And we did that in December of 2020. And it's just been an amazing ride already. Everything is just, I guess it's spring, it's blooming. Um, we have been raising money uh, in a way that makes us really confident that this is, again, the right thing at the right time, and we're going to be able to, to do great things. We, um, by the time that you are listening to this, we will have, I expect, just uh, celebrated our second annual Wellbeing Week in Law, which is always just chock full of amazing activities. Um, with something happening every day of the week to celebrate the, the different dimensions of well-being. Uh, this year we are having, and I bet it's probably just going on about now, the third week of May, uh, an after party, which we spend a whole week providing educational support and inspiration for all the well-being directors at the many um, legal employers and law firms, which is another um, just an, another part of the movement that's transpiring as, as we grow. So really exciting. Our website's been updated. We're going to start accepting members, uh, both, both individual and organizational this summer. So it, we're growing and we're growing fast and it's a really exciting time. And I am so privileged to be able to sit as the uh, board president and acting executive director and we'll be even more delighted when we hire <laughs> our permanent executive director. So yeah, good things are happening. Yeah, it's, again, like you said, it's been a it's been a great ride. Momentum is building. It certainly feels like there's a a sense and a sense of, of 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 optimism. And again, our the institute's ability to be a facilitator and a dot connector of all the different well-being activities happening across the profession is just going to be so important to kind of. Uh, making sure that this issue remains front and center. And again, if the, if the big time goal is to create a culture shift, uh, it certainly starts with, uh, with an entity that can focus on this day in, day out. Absolutely. You okay. know, our tagline, which we just adopted, is um, the Institute for Wellbeing in Law leading the legal profession to greater well-being. And so that really kind of just sums up what we're um, hoping and planning to do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, today let's let's delve a little bit more into uh, into another, I think, area of the well-being discussion that is a, a really important one, and that's the intersection of well-being and the role of law schools. 
We know that so much of how our profession evolves depends on the manner in which we attract and train lawyers coming into the profession, which makes uh, the conversation around American legal education so important. And our guest uh, today is a, he's a good one. Uh, he's one who's been deemed a, a legal rebel by the ABA Journal. Uh, he's been known to be unafraid of taking on the institutional gatekeepers of, of the legal profession. Uh, and so we know that we're talking with a thought leader, and some may say a disruptor uh, in the, in the legal it. space. So, uh, so we welcome uh, Kyle uh, McEntee to the podcast. And Bree, would you be so kind to introduce uh, Kyle to our podcast listeners? I absolutely would. And, and, you know, in preparing for this, Chris and I had a great conversation with Kyle, and I can just tell from that, you know, hour that we spent on the phone that he is really a preeminent thought leader. Um, in this space. And so I, I encourage everybody to listen closely and get a glimpse into the future and where we're going around the lawyer well-being movement in law schools. Kyle um, told me he's a hater of long introductions. So uh, I'll keep it quick and you'll get to know him over the course of the time that we're here together. Kyle McEntee is the executive director of Law School Transparency, a nonprofit organization he co-founded in 2009 while he was in law school. Um, so Kyle, let me ask you the question that we like to always start off with is what got you into the well-being movement? Inevitably, everyone that I've talked to that has a real passion around this work they have, um, they have something in their life that has motivated them. So what motivates you to get up and do this hard work every day? Well, first of all, Chris and Bree, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for getting it started with me blushing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, I'm, I'm not a fan of those intros. Um, so I, I am on the periphery of this well-being movement and someone who wants to be more involved. I think that's where I would start by saying. Mm -hmm. And as I thought about this question, because uh, I did get this question up ahead of time, <laughs> yeah. I I came up with three reasons, I think, um, upon reflection about why this matters to me. The, the first is the cost of becoming a lawyer. And this relates to the founding of my organization, Law School Transparency. But, you know, I currently have hopefully for not much too longer because of loan forgiveness, um, a lot of student debt. And this is a really stressful thing for anyone, but especially a new lawyer um, and especially someone who's trying to start an organization, which I, I've spent the last 10 years since I graduated law school in startup mode. And you know, it, it weighs on you. Sure. Uh, this, the second is the, these cultural expectations we have related to work and work-life balance. It's something I've, I've struggled with. It's something I've seen my friends struggle with, both in law school, before law school, after law school. And it's that expected work ethic that I think is really troubling and something that needs to be dismantled, which is a, a decades, if not centuries long process. Right. And then the third thing is really trying to listen to people who study these issues. And then my hope that I can use my position of privilege to cause positive change. I know that there's a problem. I don't fully understand them outside of like myself and my friends and my family, but by listening and knowing that I do have a position of influence that can be used for that greater good, I, it makes me want to, to, to help. Yeah. Interesting. Let's, let's, 
Kyle, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about law school transparency and the, the organization that you lead. Uh, I think it started while you were in law school. What what, what were the motivations behind the, the, the project and you know, ultimately how did it get started? Yeah, so it actually started before law school. Um, the organization itself we founded while I was my one else during my one else summer. But before law school, I was seeking job statistics during the application process. I knew that I wanted to go to law school, um, but I didn't really know much about being a lawyer. And so I started to investigate what that looked like and what kind of jobs people from various schools got, because I knew that there was some element of where you go to school matters. Uh, I didn't understand it as well as I needed to. And so as upon investigating it, uh, I struggled to find information. Uh, I ended up at the admitted students weekend for Vanderbilt where I ultimately went, uh, attended and at Vanderbilt, they provided this list of where all graduates from the class of 2007, uh, went to work. And I thought this list was amazing. Um, I, I started to talk with my co-founder, Patrick Lynch, who was currently a one L at Vanderbilt at the time. So just for timeline purposes, this is roughly March, April of 2008. And we said, you know, we should try to get other schools to provide this information. And so we started to, to look into it. And what we discovered, publicized, and ultimately addressed was that there was widespread deceptive employment statistics published by law schools and blessed by the ABA. So for example, law schools would you know, say 98% of our graduates are employed, but that figure counted a barista at Starbucks, the same as an associate at a large firm. And the schools did not disclose this. Now, of course, they're now prohibited from doing that. And there's a lot more detailed employment data available. But it was this thirst for information and then a recognition that someone needed to stand up and demand change that caused me and Patrick Lynch, my co-founder, to say, hey, let's let's do this. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty uh pretty pretty gutsy uh, project for somebody in law school, just coming into law school and, and kind of holding the powers that be in, in, into a, a different, uh, a different position. I'm curious how, how the organization has been received by, by the, by the legal education world. Well, in the beginning, it was made a little bit easier by the fact that we were two law students at Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. So no one really thought we were jealous or experiencing some kind of sour grapes. We were pretty quickly pegged as two students doing something good. And that was really helpful. Mm. But pretty quickly that uh, evolved, <laughs> that attitude evolved because we were making, I don't want to say demands uh, because we were not in a position to make demands, but we were making arguments that law schools were acting unethically that the ABA was turning, um, turning away from this and, and not doing as much as they should be. And so we were met with a, a lot of animosity to, to say the least, and a lot of excuses from schools. So when we said schools should be disclosing more data, they said, oh, well, it would violate our students' privacy. And that was just a nonsense argument. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, I hope you all can't hear the blowers and the lawn lawnmowers outside. <laughs> I haven't heard it at all. So we're good. No. All right. Good. 
Uh, Kyle, can you just, I, I'm, I'm just for our listeners, if you had to characterize the mission of law school transparency, as it uh, obviously it's it's evolved from a, maybe a single issue to a, to a, a much broader mission. Just uh, can you share that with us? Yeah. So our mission actually really hasn't changed from the beginning. Um, it is to make entry to the legal profession more transparent, affordable, and fair. Mm. So we always viewed transparency as uh, and transparency on employment outcomes and salary outcomes as a really important foundation for our work as opposed to the end itself, because we knew that once law schools were required to share higher quality information, that students would make more informed decisions, which would likely affect the price of legal education, as well as the uh, number of people who are wanting to go. And you know, that ended up being pretty accurate. Um, I would say we got pretty lucky on that front. Uh, we had a lot of factors going for us. Um, but overall, the mission is it stayed pretty true to that throughout the time. And law schools just keep giving us things to do. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I remember when that reporting came out about uh, basically the law schools are misleading their applicants. And that was really explosive. And of course, I had never heard of LST at the time, but I remember thinking, boy, they've, they are courageous, to say the least, to, to take that on. So um, I think that you, you guys made a pretty big splash there at the very beginning. That's wonderful. So It's funny because it didn't really feel courageous at the time. Hmm. And that's because I don't think we really contemplated the, the risk we were taking. Uh, and ultimately we felt that, and I still feel it today where uh -huh. I will walk into a room and you know I, I definitely feel the, air, feel the air go out of it at times. Um, but at the time we were just saying, you know, there's a problem and right. someone should fix it. Right, right, absolutely. So as you move forward, you started preparing your law school reports. Could you talk about that and what, what you're measuring in those? Yeah, so uh, the LST reports, these are our, our law school reports, uh, lstreports.com. These are tools for pre-law students trying to decide both whether and where to go to law school. And we're on the fifth generation of this site at this point. Um, it started out with us taking the current employment information and helping people understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. And so a lot of it at that time was saying, okay, see this top line number, it says 98% employed. Here's actually what goes into it and why you shouldn't look at this um, as your ticket to financial security. Right. And with the salaries, we would say, you know, see this median salary of $160,000. Well, it actually reflects about 5% of the class in some instances, and, and here's why. Mm -hmm. And over time, as we forced information I'm sorry, it's getting really loud here. <laughs> why, why don't we just kind of consider this a break? Your law firm is worth protecting, and so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and bind coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard, our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com.
And we're back with Kyle McEntee, the Executive Director of Law School Transparency. A uh, little minor interruption as the uh, as the, the leaf blowers blew into uh, Kyle's backyard. And uh, so we are we are officially back. Uh, Kyle, we were talking about the law school reports and kind of what you're what you're measuring. And and, uh, you're, you know, I think what's really important is that you provide this information to kind of the, the future prospects of legal education free of free of charge. Talk about, you know, kind of, you know, how many folks visit your site and how important that work has been at uh, impacting the legal education world? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start in reverse order and say, I think it's made a really big impact because as I was talking about before, it started with explaining what was wrong with the current information, the then current. And over time, we have been able to force out new information. Uh, so law schools now voluntarily disclose a substantial amount of employment data and salary data that they previously weren't. And now the ABA requires that schools publish a lot of data. And then the ABA publishes those same data um, in spreadsheet form, which makes it really easy to get it in my wow. database. Wow. Um, and so what we're ultimately measuring, though, is employment outcomes, admissions likelihood, costs, bar exam outcomes. And we're taking, I think, over a million data points and organizing it into something that's relatively easy to use for pre-law students and their advisors. And the, the goal here is helping them make informed decisions, which goes to whether to go to school at all, which school to choose, how much to pay, and all of that's built on where should I even apply? Can right. I get in? Uh, who should I be trying to negotiate with? What does negotiation even look like on when you're negotiating salaries? And this information has, I think, done a, a pretty good job at transforming at least part of the market. That said, you know, we, we do have tens of thousands of pre-law students every year on the site, but they tend to be people who are considering the top performing schools. And they tend to be later in the process when they're making the decision about where to go, as opposed to earlier in the process when they're deciding where to apply. And if you apply to the wrong schools based on your career goals, that's not as helpful as it would be if you, you know, use this information earlier in the process so that way you were making choices among schools that made sense for you. And because one of the things we've really learned through all this increased transparency is that law schools are very local or re even regional and that the number of national schools, it's you know, maybe 10, maybe 15, but past that, you really should be looking at a school where you want to work. Um, that I think has been an attitudinal shift that we've been able to see among pre-law students. Wow. That said, there's still a, a, a lot to do on that front because US News remains the elephant in the room for people who are deciding where to where to apply, where to attend. Yeah, Kyle, can you talk a little bit about the US News and World Report ranking of law schools? That, from my view, causes um, so many problems for students and I guess in just in a misleading way when they're trying to make these vital decisions. Could you talk a little bit about, about those reports and um, how in some ways they're not really very helpful? Yeah, I, I, I'll use stronger language. Um, Go right ahead. <laughs> um, they are enormously damaging to both pre-law students as they're trying to decide whether and where to apply to law school, but also to law schools 
they stifle innovation. They cause schools to allocate their resources in all kinds of nonsensical ways. And it makes it very difficult for schools to have a real commitment to equity, to diversity, to mm -hmm. innovation, to affordability, all these things that there's pretty wide consensus on that law schools don't do that well. Law schools are not doing a good job on equity. Law schools are not doing a great job on affordability. They're not doing a good job on evaluating uh, students for the competencies that they need to be successful lawyers. And U.S. News is the constant elephant in the room. Right. And it's difficult to make any decision internally at a law school without someone somewhere thinking, how will this affect my ranking? Because it affects all stakeholders. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, just, I, it's, it's a terrible situation. Yeah, I went back and taught at University of Texas School of Law for four years in a clinical program. And I saw that up close when I was really starting to watch the administration and how the school operated and the, you know, the, the chasing of those rankings, that is just the most important thing, not just the most important metric. Um, and it really does distort things to a great degree. So wonderful that you're shedding some light on that. Alan, are you surprised that 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 tool has maintained its its stranglehold on law school perception? No, I'm not. Uh, I think rankings serve a useful purpose to humans. Mm -hmm. We look for shortcuts, and not necessarily. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. In this case, it is, but it's difficult to organize a lot of different data points and then figure out what to do with it. In other words, it's hard to turn data into information. And US News, through its simplicity of an ordinal ranking that says one is better than two, two is better than 30, really helps people sure. feel confident in their choice. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is when the methodology is unsound and the weightings are irrational and the schools you're comparing with one another don't deserve to be compared to each other. Um, and so it's really not that surprising that people want to find a tool that can do this uh, and you know tell you that one school is better than the other. And then against the backdrop of a profession that is obsessed with prestige mm -hmm. at every, every point, uh, whether it's where you go to law school, how you do in law school, whether you're on law review, what your class rank is. Uh, then once you're out in practice, are you on the fancy lists? Are you, and then like at the big law firms, are you a vault hundred firm? Are you a vault 20 right. firm? Are you a vault five firm? Yeah. Or what are your profits per partner? And what does this mean? Or what are my, what's my bonus? And how does my bonus compare to, you know, the person across the hall or the firm across town or the firm across the country? And, you know, that's, it's enormously damaging, uh, to, to people. Um, and I, I think that because of that, it's really not that surprising that a, a ranking that reinforces that hierarchy that so many lawyers are looking for keeps its power. And that's what makes dealing with it and mitigating its influence 
such a challenge. Mm-hmm. Sure. And there's idea too, uh, uh, listening to that word prestige and, and chasing that prestige and what research has shown, yes, that is what per, pervades the, the legal profession as an overarching goal for so many, but research has showed that that is not what brings us happiness, uh, a sense of well-being, or satisfaction in our life. There's great research uh, from Professor Larry Krieger that uh, really delves into that quite a bit. And so, let me just sort of shift a little bit to to around the topic of well-being and um, for law students and lawyers, young lawyers in particular. Can you make the connection between what the issues that you're dealing with there with law schools and transparency and law student well-being. Yeah, I think there's two main intersections here. Um, and there's probably more, but there's there's two I will talk about. One is the cost of legal education and law school is not affordable. And so what we're doing is trying to figure out what are the structural impediments to more affordability. And then the second goes to inclusivity. And when people don't feel included in a community, uh, they're less likely to be happy and satisfied. Right. And we think that there's actually a huge amount of overlap in those structural impediments to legal education being more affordable, to legal education being more inclusive, more equitable, and ultimately producing um, more diversity that, with people who actually feel like they belong because it's it's not enough to just say, you know, we're meeting a quota, right, for the number of women graduating from law school or the number of people of color graduating from law school. As a profession, we need to be welcoming to everyone and make everyone feel like they belong uh, because otherwise we are going to fail on our primary charge of upholding the promise of the rule of law. Right. Do you, Kyle, do you see, if you had to give a grade to the American legal education system when it comes to the pursuit of diversity and equity and inclusion in our law school classes, you know, this is a little off the cuff question, but I think it's important because I I do agree with you that uh, so much of well-being is associated with a feeling of, of, of belonging and, 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 and being there. Right. And so I'm, I'm curious on your, just your perception of, of, uh, of, of, of the reality of what, how you see it. I think I'm going to resist. I will <laughs> give an answer, but the reason I'm going to resist is that I'm often a critic of, uh, systems of measurement that lack validity, uh, mm. notable us news and any grade I would give would lack validity. Cause I don't know exactly what I'd be measuring, how I'd be measuring it and how to make it, you know, mean yeah. something that said, there are a lot of opportunities right now for law schools to do better on all of these fronts, mm-hmm. but they are very often restricted by the elephant in the room, U.S. News. I know I keep coming back to them and they yeah. are not the always the answer to things, but I do think that by mitigating some of that influence, we can make a lot of inroads on the issues that matter to a lot of people, namely educational quality, diversity, affordability. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Does, has law school transparency, do you have ambitions or are you already 
moving into the ranking space, right? If, if we know that they may be, that the other ranking system might be um, looking at the wrong things that actually people uh, most intently care about, you know, part of that would be to provide an alternative to what's already established out there. And I'm just kind of curious on your, on your thoughts and your vision related to that. Yeah. So we have been in this space for a little while with the LST reports, and we do have plans to expand um, into another, another space. I'll get into that in a second, but the LST reports as a whole, we're trying to help people figure out whether and where to go to law school and then which school to choose. And we do this by providing data about schools, but also helping people navigate which schools to choose among, namely where to apply. And then once you're down to the schools you've been accepted to, which schools to, to actually choose. And we've paid attention to why people like rankings. They, they like the quick sort, they like the, 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 the shortcut, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have focused on what data can we use to introduce students to our information. Um, so we use the, a formation of the, the gold standard job, which is long-term full-time jobs that require bar passage. And we put this into something called an employment score. And then that employment score is the primary sorting mechanism that we provide to students that lets them see relatively which schools perform better or worse. And then from there, we introduce them to the many layers of information that they can use to make informed choices. And, and so it's not a direct competitor to an ordinal ranking system because we don't provide one, two, three, four, five rankings, but it is an alternative tool that students are using and students are saying, you should use this instead of the rankings because it actually provides you a, a, a better means of coming to an informed choice that you'll be satisfied with. And Kyle, is that on your website? Yeah, so the LC reports as a whole is designed around all these questions and people use it collectively as a tool um, instead of US News. Now, again, not as many people as necessary uh, to actually have the larger impact that we're hoping for, but we've made a, a really good start on it. Wonderful. Um, and I, what is your web, web address? Just so we- Yes, we, we have a few web addresses. So lawschooltransparency.com is the main organizational website and all of our resources are linked from there. But then the LST reports, which is those law school reports, uh, the profiles, the comparison pages, we've got a, a tool that helps organize which schools to apply to and attend and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's lstreports.com. And then our new website um, for this upcoming project uh, that will likewise try to take some of the oomph out of US News is will be lstindex.com. And what is that? So essentially, and it's unnamed at this point, um, but we're tentatively calling it the LST index um, and certification, but it is an alternative measurement system that will reward and validate the efforts that schools make um, in efforts in, in make in the themes of transparency, affordability, access, and educational quality. And the way it works is it's essentially lead certification for law schools. 
So it'll use a, a point-based system, and we're currently in the process of developing metrics. We'll probably end up with 50 different metrics that measure the things that we think and the profession thinks and legal educators think actually matter. And the goal here is to credit schools for the good things that they're doing and actually create a market for it so that way they will compete on it. Right. Students will use it and we can actually incentivize the kind of change that we believe needs to happen and that U.S. News currently stifles. Uh, let's, let's transition and talk a little bit about what's on the horizon uh, for you and, and, and law school transparency. I know you've been in the midst of crafting a vision 2025 and you tell us a little bit about just kind of that project and where you where, where you feel like the important nudges are for our legal education system on the horizon yeah absolutely so the the our vision overall is to have a, a legal education that provides uh, more a, a more diverse profession and is more affordable to enter and we identify two structural impediments to this. One is that the ABA standards both under and over-regulate. Um, that is, there are too many prescriptive standards that tell schools how they have to do things. And then there are too few standards that actually protect consumers. And that's especially related to learning outcomes and assessment. And so we are working with the ABA to try to get them to rethink their standards from the ground up. Namely, we wanna see them throw out a bunch of standards and enhance some of their current standards, again, particularly related to, to educational quality. So then the second main impediment is the one we've been talking about most of this episode so far, which is US News. And so law schools have, uh, they face a system of incentives that just isn't working very well. And so we are looking at how we can upset the balance of incentives. And that is a, hand, a handful of things we're working on, um, two of which we've already talked about, the LSC reports and the LST index, but also looking at um, working with US News to further refine their methodology and to work with US News voters to refine how they make their choices about how they grade schools. Um, it's, it's kind of a, if you can't beat them, join them attitude. Yeah. <laughs> but we think that if we can make some marginal improvements to the rankings, we can make some marginal improvements to law school behavior while we simultaneously uh, create a new system of incentives through the LST index and provide a lot of consumer information that's mm -hmm. actionable to pre-law students and their advisors on the LST reports. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So let me ask you, what advice, if there are some law students who are listening to this, or some people, I'm sorry, prospective law students who are listening to this, what advice would you tell them um, or give them about picking a law school other than to read your reports? <laughs> <laughs> they, they need to think carefully about what they want out of a law school and especially focused on the kind of jobs that they want access to. Now, I know that's kind of a tall order for a graduating senior or even someone who's just one or two years out of law school. And people shouldn't think that they have to decide what kind of law they want to practice beforehand. But it is important to think about to the extent you're able to. Um, if, for example, we, and we see this pretty often, 
someone will choose a school that is very expensive. Let's say they'll end up borrowing $300,000 to attend, right. uh, but they want to be a family lawyer, but they think that they need to go to the number 10 school in the country because they got in, even if they have to pay at or near full price. When really they would, if they want to be a family lawyer, they would have been better off going to a school that they can get into and not pay any tuition or pay very little tuition or find a living circumstance where they don't have as high a cost of living that they have to borrow for during law school. Mm -hmm. And, and so if someone, so that's kind of one of the consequences is if you think as clearly as possible about what you want to do, you, it, it'll open up a, a number of schools to you that you may not have otherwise considered. Sure. What about law? anyone who is a law student now who is not satisfied with their experience? You get in school and look around and see, this is not meeting my needs, I guess, is the, the only answer for them to, to transfer. Um, what, what do you do with that? And I just want to say a comment in regards to tying this to well-being. When I was the director of the Lawyer's Assistance Program, I fielded so many calls from distressed lawyers who you could tell after talking to them for about two minutes, there was just a terrible fit between them and the law or them and the area of practice they've chosen. And when you have that uh, mismatch between internal you know, goals and what you're actually finding yourself in, it has a devastating effect on your just overall well-being. And I've seen a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, and substance misuse come out of that um, situation. So what, what would you say to somebody who's found themselves in a place where there's not a good match? That it's okay to stop. Mm. I mean, I, I enjoy law school a lot. Um, but I, I, I had a number of people that I knew that made that choice, both at Vanderbilt and at other schools. And they just said, you know what, this isn't for me. And that's okay. It doesn't make you a quitter. It, it makes you someone who is taking control of their happiness and their career, their career and their career satisfaction. Uh, now that's not something to do on a whim, but right. it is something to do in consultation with a therapist or mm -hmm. other lawyers or someone from a lawyer wellness program. Right. Um, it, it should be a conversation that you have and you shouldn't be afraid of having. Yeah. And it's so, I think it's so, challenging. I think, Bree, what you're kind of referencing is this notion of a what I, what I like to call an expectations gap, right, between what you thought it would be like versus what it is like. And then at that point, you know, I'm a, I'm a first-generation lawyer, and if at some point, you know, a couple of years into my legal career, you know, you know, when your parents are really proud of you, right, that you're, you're the first lawyer in the family and those types of things, it's, you know, there's, there's those pressures. And then, and then you add on top of the the student loan debt, Kyle, which you've you've articulated, is, is so consequential in the equation that it that just I I can understand and empathize where a lot of our young lawyers then feel like they're kind of in a box and they just can't they, they, you know, either you you lack the mental fortitude to stop as you suggest, but uh, and, and then kind of feel like you got to keep going or or even practice in areas that maybe that are. are, are not aligned with your own values, right? And and, and because you, you just need the you, you need the salary to be able to justify what you just paid out to to secure a law education. Absolutely. So it's it's man, it, it's such a 
I, this is the greatest fear that I have in terms of uh, students coming into the profession is just this notion of an expectations gap, which is which is becoming more challenging and, and seeing more people leave the profession, but leave it in a way that leaves a negative connotation for uh, for kind of uh, whether they would even advise their own uh, children to go to law school ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Kyle, what would you then say to the rest of us? I mean, we've been talking about prospective law students, law students, why should the rest of the legal profession care? What And what would you say to the lawyers that are already out there? What, what advice or encouragement would you give to them, particularly the legal employers? Well, if, if we're talking legal employers, um, I, I think this goes to one of the original points I made about what kind of brought me to this well-being movement, which is these cultural expectations related to work and work-life balance. And so much of this is driven by the employers. And that's driven by not defining and clearly delineating boundaries with clients. Mm -hmm. And the expectations of clients then make it through to the employer who then makes it through to the person who's hired, the new hires, and then rinse and repeat into perpetuity. And we need to disrupt that cycle in order to really have an impact. And that's a really tall order because it's not just a law problem. This is a, a, a U.S. problem, one that is shared around the world, but probably worse here than anywhere else, or close to worse here than anywhere else. And so I think for employers, they just, they, they need to think not about band-aids, but about what kind of structural changes they can make and that they could participate in. Kyle, as we think about well-being, again, bringing it back to the, the law student experience, I mean, I think one of the things that there's a potential partnership between you and the Institute is, 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 is a more, um, a, a, a stronger ability for us to be able to recognize law schools that actually emphasize well-being as part of their curriculum. Um, and I, I, I know it feels like a lot of you, the work that you do, and again, you're tackling kind of big picture systemic issues. I mean, obviously, one of the things that we're trying to appreciate is uh, things like reducing stigma in, in the law student experience, right? And really understanding how we can recognize schools that prioritize well-being as part of their curriculum. And, and obviously, that then trains lawyers to know that it's okay to come out and say, you know, when, when things are occurring to you or feel like you can go to your senior partner um, and so, you know, as, as you think about the, um, the law school experience for students in schools, uh, I'm wondering about your, just your thoughts on, on, on how we can better um, provide, again, more information to consumers uh, about, uh, about what type of experience they'll have and the commitment of the school to the law student's well-being. Yeah, I think there's so much to do together on this. Um, the going back to the the index i mean what we're doing there is developing metrics right so we're looking at or well i'm asking people to imagine the headline that that uh, they, they would like to read about some problem so if we acknowledge that well being in law school is a huge problem we say okay well what's what's one headline that would make us feel like we've done something important and it might be that law schools off the cuff here um law schools 
uh, acknowledge or, or, or teach. I'm struggling on this. Um, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of a form, formulation of something related to your stigma point. Uh, so whatever that pro hot headline might be, then we would develop a metric that would measure progress towards that. And I think that looking at what law schools do and figuring out what is it that we can measure and cause to school, schools to do and to change, to, um, that will really be a way of creating a market around well-being, which is kind of a weird way to approach it, right? It, it's something you want to just come from inside. But through our analysis, we don't, we don't think that's going to work. We think it requires creating a, a system of, of, of incentives and, and then enforcing that system. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there is so much work to be done here. And Kyle, thank you so much for being with us today. It's, it was obvious to us just after a few minutes talking to you that you really are a thought leader in this space and tremendous courage. I mean, as you've talked about this and thinking about that you are um, finishing up your first year of law school and you start to take on this project and it must have felt like sort of David and Goliath and you've continued to fight this good fight and I know that you will continue to do so. Um, we're so impressed with your work and um, I really want us to continue to ally ourselves together um, and see what we can continue to do to transform the legal profession so that it really meets the needs of everybody involved. So, Carl, thank you for being here, Chris. It's been another great 45 minutes with you. Um, and we will have uh, more podcasts coming online with thought leaders in the lawyer well-being movement and hope that everybody can join us. Take care. Be well. Thanks, Bree. Thanks, Carl. Thank you.